Man. I love music. Y'all love music? Yeah? No? Maybe? Kinda? I don't know. Um, Drew and Don, when they were preparing for uh, services today, they asked me, um, what song, Pastor Tim, would you like us to sing? And um, and so I told him, we sang it. Any guesses on which one it was? Any guesses at all? College students, y'all were there. Y'all heard me. So y'all should have a leg up on that one. <laughs> How Deep the Father's Love is the one I requested today. It's one of my favorite uh, worship songs. Uh, just because it reflects so much the mystery of God's love for us and how it works. Uh, I wanted to ask you, what are some of your favorite worship songs? Hymns, contemporary songs, what are, what are some of your favorites? Amazing Grace. That's, a, that's, that's one that's, that's been there and will continue to be there uh, for a long time. We'll work till Jesus comes. All right. That's a... Great is thy faithfulness. He lives. Holy, 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 sweet, sweet spirit. He's everything to me. In Christ alone. These are some great songs. These are some powerful songs. Reflections of what? Our relationship to our Savior. If we dug a little bit deeper into why those songs are meaningful to you, um, we'd probably get a little bit, uh, we'd probably get a few different answers. Um, some of them are significant to us because they played a, a role in a significant moment in our life. Maybe the loss of uh, a loved one or uh, words of comfort when we were hurting. Uh, but I think a lot of us would say that the reason we like these songs, love these songs, enjoy these songs is because they say something profound to us about the God that we serve and what he's called us to do and who he's called us to be. They speak to the very heart of who we are. Um, songs have a way of saying things that words in a, in a, in a speech, in a, in a sermon, in a conversation simply cannot convey. There's a depth to them. There is a, a power uh, in them. Today, as we continue our journey through 1 Samuel, we come to 1 Samuel 2, which is a song of Hannah. Now, your translation, my translation, um, says there in verse 1, Hannah prayed. But we need to understand that in the biblical world, that a prayer and a song were typically very close to each other. If you've ever been to the Welling Wall or or seen videos of the Wailing Wall in Jerusalem, so forth. You'll you'll note the the people there that are praying, especially the the Israelite the Israelis that are praying there. They're they're usually there's a rhythm to how they're praying, and the reason they're doing that is because their prayer is a song. It is an expression that grows out of who they are, and, and throughout the biblical uh, narrative, we see these these key moments when. Significant events are followed by a song of some sort. When Israel crossed through uh, the Red Sea, on the other side of that, we get the song of Moses and the song of Miriam. 
when uh, Barak and Deborah won the great battle um, there uh, against Sisera. We get the song of Deborah that's expressed there in Judges 5. This is not restricted to just the Old Testament and the New Testament. When, when um, you, you hear uh, Mary's song and Zechariah's song and, and other songs there as great moments and great things are expressed to those individuals. It's a normal part of life that when you experience something magnificent, something transformative, something beyond your ability to really assess and evaluate and, and, and put into simple words to break into song. Or at the very least, if you're not a singer, to think about a song, to, to, to want to listen to a particular song, to want to hear those praises, to want to hear that greatness. And, and Hannah here has just experienced this, this great deliverance that we looked at last week. She was without child. She was persecuted by an outsider. She was experiencing life um, really at its most difficult for someone in, in her stage, someone in her circumstance. Um, many around her would have considered her less than, incomplete, not whole. And she reached out to God acknowledging who he is on his throne, seeing his power, his majesty, and she asked him to fight for him. As we noted last week, it's the first time in Scripture that you find the phrase Lord of hosts or Lord of angel armies used. She's beckoning God to fight the battle for her, to heal her, to help her, to give her a child in this case. God did just that. God moved in her circumstances and changed her situation and gave her a son. And in obedience to her vow, in obedience to her promise, in recognition of the fact that God alone was the source of all this, she has given her son to the Lord to serve him all his days. And now as we come to chapter 2, she, she breaks into song. She communicates some, some truths about the nature of the God that sits on the throne that she serves. So let's look at this song this morning. Let's, let's break it down in terms of exactly what she is saying here and what she understands about her God. She starts here in verse 1. My heart rejoices in Yahweh. My horn is lifted up by Yahweh. My mouth boasts over my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. The first thing she says here is that his presence is cause for rejoicing. We need to recognize that it's though she is rejoicing and she's singing because of the great victory she's experienced, that the heart of her focus, the heart of her desire, the heart of her expression here is the fact that God is with her.
there are gifts that are special because of the nature of the gift, and then there are gifts that are special what? Because of the person who gave them to us. You know, in my office, around my office on shelves and window seals and so forth are a lot of objects. Um, by worldly standards, they're not that valuable. But I wouldn't trade them for anything. They're things that my kids made for me. Things that, in some cases, they bought for me because they thought, Dad would really like that. And I do like it. Not just because of what it is, but because they gave it to me. It's from them. And I'm happy about it because it connects me to them. And that's what Hannah's doing here. And that's what we need to do is we recognize the blessings of God. Is it's not just the blessings that are great. They are significant and they're special and they're important. Samuel was indeed a great gift from God to Hannah here. But it was the fact that God had given it that made the difference. And that God was connecting with Hannah. He was saying, I think you'd really like this. He was paying attention to where she was at. He was paying attention to what she was dealing with. And to think that the God of this universe with all the things that are going on in the world all the prayers that are being lifted up. With all the needs that are being met. He hears you. He sees you. And he gives to you. Is to think of just how special and amazing he is. The heart of our songs, the heart of our praise is that sovereign God loves us and has connected with us. She continues on. There is no one holy like Yahweh. There is no one beside you. And there is no rock like our God. Here she notes that his uniqueness is the basis for life, for operation, for functioning. The fact that we are in relationship with him is great, but it's even greater when we realize, as I intimated before, how unique he is. When it talks about there's no one holy like you, he's saying there's no one even in the conversation with you. Now we have all sorts of debates in our world, in our life, in our existence today. Who's the greatest basketball player of all time? You know, my generation tends to say it's Michael Jordan. Earlier generations will say Bill Russell. You know, the modern generation tends to say LeBron. Perhaps Kobe. Who knows? But the fact that there's a discussion says what? They're basically in the same sphere even though there's some distinctions between them, and even though there's some differences between these players, and these whatever it is that we're identifying as the greatest ever, there's people who are always in the conversation right alongside them. There's somebody to compare them to. There's somebody to, to weigh them off of. There's somebody to 
to further the debate. But when it comes to God, there's no one else in the conversation. There's no one else to compare him to. You look at the feeble gods that we have made, that we've created. And over and over again throughout the biblical text, it, it reminds us just how feeble and useless they are. It talks about how, how we, we, we nail them down to the ground so that they don't fall over. Or if they do fall over, we go and we stand them back up. What kind of God is it that that we have to secure, we have to stand up, that, or that we have to, to, to support and undergird? In the modern world where we've moved away from the physical idolatry and slipped more into a psychological idolatry, the gods that we have created, the gods that we follow, the, the things that we bow down to in our life, if you think about it again, they are feeble. They need our support. They, they need our, our defense. They need our, our arguments to present who they are. God, Yahweh, stands alone. There's no one else in the conversation. There's no one else who has created. There's no one else who can hold all of Humanity accountable. There's no one else who died so that we might live. And to see his position, to see his place, is to see that he is the foundation for our life. Here she refers to him as, there's no rock like our God. The, the, the word for rock, there's not the normal word for rock. It's, it's, it's probably better translated bedrock. He's the foundation. Jesus makes the illustration later on in the New Testament about what do we build our house upon? The wise man builds his house upon the rock. The foolish upon the sand. Indeed, in, in those days, it was because of the lack of technology and so forth, it was uh, very foolish to even attempt to build things on sand. Today we do it, but, but how do we do that today? We do it by what? Drilling down to the bedrock putting in pillars that move past all the sand and all the gunk and all the worthless stuff to that firm foundation that our house can then stand on. And as individuals, as people in this life, there's a lot of things that want us to build our lives around it, want us to, to focus in on and want us to, to, to see that it as the, the priority. And we need to have the wisdom to, to look past that, that gunk and that, that fake security that so many things in the world tries to say that it provides and get to the foundation of God. The one who loves you, the one who made you, the one who knows you. 
Why would you build anyplace else? Whether you're talking about your family, your relationship, your marriage, how you raise your children. As I listened to the, the children sing this morning, I, I, the song does what? That song communicates that those children hope to be the light that, that what? That God has made them. And that's a dream, that's a passion, that's a commitment that will see them through their entire life if they continue to pursue it. We need to be a people who are building our lives on the solid foundation that God is. Verse 3, do not boast so proudly or let arrogant words come out of your mouth. For Yahweh is a God of knowledge and actions are weighed by him. His knowledge is a rationale for humility. And I think there's there's two ways that that phrase can be understood of what Hannah is saying here. I think one thing that she's saying here is because God is all-knowing, because God is informed as to what's actually going on in your heart, what you're actually pursuing, what your actual motivations are, we would be idiotic to do anything out of anything except for humility. Because what? God resists the proud, but he exalts the humble. And so as we live our lives, we need to live lives of authentic humility, recognizing he is God and we are not, recognizing our need for him, recognizing that whatever actions we are able to accomplish, whatever dreams we are able to fulfill, we're only able to do those because he himself has supported us, directed us, and guided us. But I think the, the second, perhaps, way that, that Hannah has in mind here in terms of his knowledge is, is uh, a, a cause for, a rationale for humility, is that he is so much smarter than us. He knows so much more than us that we're best just shutting our mouth and listening. I do okay in the intellect area. But there have been several times in my life where I've been in a symposium or just in a conversation with a colleague and been so overwhelmed by their knowledge that I just had to shut up. There was nothing I could contribute to the conversation. There was nothing I could say that would add to what they were already saying. And so the wise move was to be quiet and just learn and listen. And I think that's something of what Hannah is saying here. If you're going to pursue a life that is directed by wisdom, that's directed by 
the best way to function and operate. So often we just need to shut up and listen to the God who's in control. Listen to what he has to say. Listen to how he's directing us. Listen to what he's already said. And as we do that, we'll discover a power that beyond our imagination. She goes on. The bows of the warriors are broken, but the feeble are clothed with strength. Those who are full who are full hire themselves out for food, and those who are starving hunger no more. The woman who is childless gives birth to seven, but the woman with many sons pines away. His power is a source of hope. You have here images of, of God flipping the expectation, flipping the world. In some ways, this is a foreshadowing of Jesus. The first shall be last and the last shall be first. That the God that, that we serve, he, he exalts, he lifts up the meek. And that's really a recurring theme that we're going to see throughout the book of Samuel. We started with, with Hannah. Though loved by her husband, she was not in a, a favored status because she had not had any children. And she was abused and she was persecuted for that. And we've seen already God lifting her up, exalting her. Now we're going to see in a couple chapters her son Samuel, this meek, unassuming young man, hear the very voice of God and lift it up to new heights, so much so that by the time he is done in his journey here, the life that he lives, he will have fulfilled more roles, accomplished more different tasks in God's economy than any other individual. By the time he's done, he's a prophet. He's a priest. He's a judge. He's a kingmaker. This little unassuming boy who at first doesn't even realize what's going on hears the voice of God and is lifted up. And then you see Saul, the first king of Israel. Again, as he's initially introduced, he's, he's unassuming. In fact, he's a little bit confused. When they're looking for him, they find him among the luggage, it says. He's just been anointed king, and where is he? He's, he's over with the luggage. It's, it's an odd picture, an odd moment, but it reflects the, the humility that he started out with. Now we see very soon he, he loses that humility. He gets full of himself, and that causes problems, but that's where he starts out. And God exalts him. And then David himself, the, the centerpiece, the heartbeat of First and Second Samuel. So meek and so insignificant that his father didn't even think to call him when Samuel says, one of your sons is going to be king. Call them all in. 
Samuel says, call them all in. And it's, it doesn't even click in his father's mind to bring David in. Uh, he's out in the field. He's fine. We can tell him what happens after it's all done. And God takes that little shepherd boy, that young teenager, and raises him to be the greatest king that Israel would ever have next to the Messiah himself. The picture of the Messiah. The one who is described as a man after God's own heart. God exalts the lowly. And if you're here this morning and you're feeling abandoned, you're feeling less than, you're feeling insignificant, I want you to understand today that that you're not insignificant, but not because you need to just get things together and, and pull yourself up by your bootstraps and, and do what's right. You're not insignificant because God has a plan and a purpose for you. And in Him, you can find your identity. You can find your future. You can find your purpose. If you'll just listen and just surrender to His power. He goes on. Excuse me, she goes on. The Lord brings death and gives life. He sends some down to Sheol and he raises others up. The Lord brings poverty and gives wealth. He humbles and he exalts. One of the, the features of the Old Testament, one of the features of, of reflections upon God's work and, and life as it is, is grounded in the concept of monotheism. That there's just one God, and if there's just one God, then ultimately everything has to go back to him in one form or another. He is, as God, he is ultimately responsible for everything that happens. There's no other way to describe it. Now we come to understand Processes called secondary causation. This are, these are things that work underneath the umbrella of God's sovereignty to guide life and circumstances and situations. These would be things like sin, Satan, the laws of science. These are all things that God has enacted, all things that God has, has allowed to exist that impact our life. But I'm afraid in our rationality, I'm afraid in our conceptualization of this secondary causation, I'm afraid that sometimes we've lost the reality of just how sovereign God is. Just how much He is, in fact, in control of everything that happens. And I think in losing that, Reality and losing that knowledge, we've lost our source of hope. Because we find ourselves in life and we find ourselves struggling with this issue and that issue and, and this matter, and, and, and we, we have all these things that are tugging at us and, and pulling at us, and we, 
and all these things that we believe are controlling us and controlling our situation and controlling our destiny and controlling our our our, our outcome. And we lose sight of the fact that God is still on the throne. You see, it's only when we realize that God truly is sovereign, truly is in control, that we can begin to move through the morass and the, 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 the weight and the struggles of this world and see that our victory resides in Him. Our deliverance resides in Him. When you read Paul say, all things work together for the good of those who are called according to God's purposes. The heart of that phrase is what? God's in control. Even the bad things that happen, he can use for his good purposes. Is that not what Joseph says at the end of his journey with his brothers? What you desired for evil, God designed to be good. We need to maintain a, a perspective, a, a knowledge and understanding, even as we, we realize our responsibility in terms of free will and sin and those sorts of things. We need to always maintain a healthy emphasis on God's sovereignty, on His power, because it's only in that that we truly are able to experience hope. It's only in that that we are truly able to have the awe that we need of who He is. To understand that God can even use evil for his purposes. Not causing it, but can even use it. He's not stopped by it. It's a true source of awe. Who else can do that? Who else can allow us free will and allow sin to exist and still, 100% of the time, get his way. Only our God. He is awesome. And we trust in his sovereignty because of his graciousness. First part of verse 8, he raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the trash heap. Who are the poor and the needy? You and I are the poor and the needy. He has lifted us up. Some of the songs of yesterday that I that I think of that we've softened over the years. Alas, and did my Savior bleed. It's a great song. Alas, and did my Savior bleed. And did my sovereign die? Would he devote that sacred head for what? It depends on which translate or which uh, version you listen to. 
The modern version says, for such a one as I. That's what the modern, you pick up a modern hymnal, that's what it's going to say most of the time. For such a one as I. Go a few years back and it says, for sinners such as I. Okay, a little bit stronger. You go back to the original authorship, however, and it says, for such a worm as I. We have lost the concept of how amazing grace is because we've lost the concept of how undeserving we are. We have lessened the impact of grace because we have increased our status before grace is enacted. We are people in a trash heap apart from the grace of God. He comes in, and he lifts us up. People who were formerly enemies are now called sons and daughters. And that grace is how we can trust him in his sovereignty. It's how we can relate to him and praise him, even in a difficult time, because we know he'll see us through. He goes on. She goes on. He seats them with noblemen and gives them a throne of hope, of, of honor. Excuse me. For the foundations of the earth are Yahweh's. He has set the world on them. He guards the steps of his faithful ones, but the wicked perish in darkness. His judgment is the determiner of destiny. One day we will all stand before his throne for judgment. And the initial issue will simply be, is this one who has found themselves in my son or not? Because if we stood before God in judgment of our own device and in our own power and under our own goodness, none of us would stand. We would all be destroyed. But standing there under the blood of Jesus the transformation that his spirit has brought, the power that his resurrection has uh, instilled, we have a future. God's judgment has declared it to be so. He who is in Christ has life everlasting. This is the promise of God. This is his judgment from beginning from before the foundations of the earth, and it is a judgment that will stand throughout eternity. But those who seek to elevate themselves, exalt themselves, view themselves as good enough, their end is destined as well to that of destruction and death. And it ends with a recognition of Yahweh's rule over all things. For a person does not prevail by his own strength. Those who oppose Yahweh will be shattered. He will thunder in the heavens against them. Yahweh will judge the ends of the earth. 
He will give power to his king. He will lift up the horn of his anointed. Sometimes we sing the song, How Great Thou Art. We do what we consider all the works his hands have made. I see the stars. I hear the rolling or mighty thunder. Thy power throughout the universe displayed. When we think about the power of God that we're able to witness in the thunderstorm, in the hurricane, in the tornado, in the earthquake. Job says those are but just the fringes of his power. Just a tiny glimpse into who he is and what he's capable of. He is in control. His rule is the need of all humanity. One day, Every knee will bow. Every tongue confess that he's in control. And it's a truth that people recognize. Though they may deny it, though they may push back against it, though they may fight against it, we all come to the realization we all ultimately know and understand that there's one God and I'm not it. Creation itself advocates it, Paul says. Creation itself judges us when we push back against that truth. Back in 1982, Soviet leader Leonid Brezhnev passed away. And George Bush, George H.W. Bush, was vice president at the time. And as such, he went to the state funeral. He stood there in the Kremlin as the people came by and paid their respects. And he paid his respects as well. And he recounts the story of how as he was standing there, he saw Brezhnev's widow standing by the casket. Now, Brezhnev's widow had herself been a primary player in Soviet politics and Soviet leadership. She had advocated and pushed for the atheistic, secular power that the Soviet Union pushed and advocated. She herself had pushed Brezhnev into uh, acts of, of uh, extreme harshness against those who dared to express a belief in God. But as she was standing there and the soldiers came toward the end of his laying in state to, to, to put the lid of the casket back on, at the very last minute before the casket was sealed, she reached in and did the sign of a cross on his chest. Hoping what? hoping what, that perhaps her husband and herself had been wrong. 
and that there was some hope of another life represented by the Jesus who had died on the cross. The same symbol she put on her husband, hoping in her limited way to find mercy from the God that she had denied existed for so long. We all know deep in our hearts there's a God. We all know that we are responsible to Him. I think if we're honest with ourselves and looking at Scripture and the lives of believers over the years, we know the power of His presence, the uniqueness of His standing, the vastness of His knowledge, power of His abilities and the awesomeness of His sovereignty. We know those things. But have we surrendered to His grace? Have we responded to His offer of life? Have we acknowledged His rule over our own existence and life? Because apart from those recognitions, apart from that surrender, apart from that commitment, all we have to look forward to is nothing to look forward to. Just destruction and pain. But in Christ, there is life. In Christ, there is hope. In Christ, there is transformation. In Christ, there is abundance. In Christ, there is direction and purpose. There's answers in the midst of our struggles. Will we listen to his offer? Or will we seek to walk in our own power, in our own abilities, and experience our own failures? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this day. I thank you for your word. I thank you for who you are, the majesty and the power that you exude and you express in so many different ways in our life, in our existence. God, I pray that you would help us to acknowledge that which deep down we really already know. God, I pray that if there's someone here this morning who's not surrendered their life to you, who's not handed you the reins of their life, who's not come to understand that in you, there's salvation, there's hope, there's a future. But God, you would draw them right now. That you would place your hand upon them and give them clarity, give them understanding, give them courage to step outside themselves in their own comfort and the perceptions of how everybody around them views them and respond in faith to your offer of salvation. God, I pray for my fellow believers and myself here this morning. 
for those times when we fail to acknowledge your sovereignty, your leadership, your rulership of our lives. When we let the culture and the society and the realities around us win because we've surrendered to the, the feeling of loss and hopelessness instead of acknowledging your sovereignty, your grace, and your goodness. Help us, Lord, to walk in power and commitment. Lord, we praise you and we thank you. In Christ's name.